So what I'm going to say is three, two, one, clap, and then you clap on the clap. If that's okay. Right. So it's free. See you, guys. See you later, buddy. Three, two, one, clap. Uh, can we do that again? Because I forgot to hit record on my local. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. One second. <laughs> Look, I've just spent Lovely two hours. Stuff. I've just spent so long talking about the film Tenet. My brain is broken. Okay. Uh, three, two, one, clap. We can make that work. Okay. And we can make that work. Okay. And I'm going to start the show in three and two and one. Hello and welcome to this uh, episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. Um, I'm sick. I'm still sick. Uh, not COVID related. I just have like the London plague, which comes with like just being outside and touching something. Um, so my throat's a little bit rough. I might be coughing a little bit. Apologies in advance. Um, I am joined by my co-host, Phoebe Roy, who is not sick. Who's actually right. looking very radiant today and like has you know, normal voice. Congratulations on that. That's right. I'm bursting with health. <laughs> yeah. Also, like I was on mood just now and I was talking about the film Tanner and I've had to like take some L's because this film that I've defended for so long, I've realized actually may might not be as good as I thought it was. So I'm kind of like processing all of that. And to process that with us, um, we are joined by uh, Joe Bernstein, who is a senior reporter at BuzzFeed News and like just generally a very interesting and thoughtful guy about like internet stuff and like digital culture. Joe, like how would you sort of describe your work at the moment? Because you've been doing a lot of things recently um, outside of BuzzFeed as well. Um, well, thanks so much for having me, guys. I'd like to say that I'm also in perfect health. And, um, <laughs> Congratulations on that. Yeah, that was the main thing. Thank you. And I'm also processing Tenet, which I liked. <laughs> um, and I'm, we can talk about that too. I liked it. No, I, we're not I, talking I, about. No, we're not talking about Tenet. I'm sorry. I'm sort of like laying down the law here. I'm not talking <laughs> about Tenet anymore today. Okay. Because I have the. Well, okay, doesn't matter. You um, can if you want. I, I, you could like overrule me. I, I'm not like an authoritarian. I just, you know. You know, wait, maybe if like the back half of the hour is slow, we can come back to Tenet. Okay. All right. um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, um, I really only did one thing outside of BuzzFeed. So I, I did this journalism fellowship in the U.S. Uh, last year. I'm based in New York. Um, and um, I did this. It's like a year of basically academic. It's an academic fellowship for a year at Harvard, which they do. Um, they take 20 or 30 journalists a year. Um, and it's sort of in a, an effort to like, this is back when journal journalism in the U S was still like a working class profession. It was an attempt mm. to like, it was an attempt to like prettify journalism to right. like, you know, give journalists culture. Um, now journalists and academics come from the same cultural background in the U S. So it's kind of just a, I don't know, it's an excuse to take a year to think. Um, which it's surprising how little, um, journalists do. Um, and so I wrote one thing that came out of that fellowship, which I really came out of a year of just sitting around and thinking about some things that were bothering me. Um, usually those just get expressed in, uh, you know, 280 characters or less. Um, but you know, I had some real time to kind of cogitate and, um, most of what I do uh, is I write features uh, for BuzzFeed and the kind of little like rubric I think about when I'm writing a feature is like, how does it 
affect the way Americans see themselves in each other? Mm. Like, how does the internet, how does tech affect the way Americans see themselves in each other? And what are the, what are the knock-on effects of that? Mm. Um, so what I wrote for Harper is this piece we're going to talk about today certainly <laughs> falls under that kind of category um, in terms of like the stories that we're telling about um, the content we read um, mm. and like how that content affects people. Uh, people we may not know or may not understand. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what, you know, what I'm up to. Obviously, there's been an Adam Bama BuzzFeed recently, um, but that's sort of what I've been up doing up to this to this point. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and, I will, and we'll be talking, I think, about that piece that you've mentioned, unless you were talking about something else entirely. But like, we, we're going to talk about a piece that you published in Harper's uh, about misinformation, disinformation, how we kind of conceive of it. Um, it's something that we've sort of talked about on the show in various iterances and like in different types of contexts and something that we've wanted to like address and just kind of really focus on a bit. So very excited to have you on um, because it is your first time on here. Um, like uh, the way that we usually kind of like introduce the show and to kind of, you know, uh, uh, make our guests kind of feel comfortable is to send them or give them like deranged or weird posts to then overanalyze for a short period of time. Um I uh I have two here. So basically I'm gonna read them out and I sort of just kind of want your immediate kind of reactions, takes, uh the weirder the better. But yeah, these are just kind of examples of like classic discourse that goes super viral and no one really knows why. So the first one I have here is one that I actually find very funny. Um this was published a couple of days ago on March twenty-seventh, twenty twenty-two. Uh, where the user says, normalize people hanging out and going to going to eat as friends. This got 33.9 thousand retweets, 6,879 quote tweets, 166,000 likes. Um, yeah, make, make it make sense. Joe, what, 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 are, your, what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, friends kind of not going out to eat anymore because it's not normal? Well, I'm going to give this the most sympathetic reading possible. And that is, we're emerging, knock on wood, from a global pandemic that has totally changed the way that people relate to each other in person. And so for the past, you know, two and a half years, yada, 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 it hasn't been normal to, uh, it hasn't been normal to eat out at a restaurant with friends. Um, and so perhaps this person is saying, let's now that, although I know there's this sub variant that's currently ravaging London and seems to have its sights set on New York, um, seems this person seems to be saying, okay, we've maybe lost these skills. We have like pandemic related, um, like, um, deficits in the way that we relate to each other because yeah. we've spent so much time basically at home, like becoming weirder, um, mm. and like <laughs> ang angrier and like just more and more bizarre and sort of like, you know, I mean, you, we see this every day. Um, and, Wesley Morris had a column in the Times about how Will Smith slapping Chris Rock was basically the most public manifestation of the great derangement, as I've heard it referred to. And so maybe this what this person is saying is we need to be re-socialized. You know, I have a two-year-old and he's being socialized in daycare right now. Maybe we need to be re-socialized at dinner with friends doing that thing that we took for granted, which is just like shooting the shit. And having a good time in a public setting with other people who are also shooting the shit and having a good time. That's my sympathetic read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, should we do the unsympathetic classic 10K <laughs> post reading? 
uh, where we where we I mean, are extremely judgmental of uh, of everyone online. I mean, my judgmental <laughs> reading is I have no idea what the fuck this person is talking about. <laughs> it's just completely incoherent. What does that mean? Normal, like, is she? It, what, what do you guys like? I what like? It's just incoherent to me. I don't know what she, what this person is trying to, to signify. Yeah. Okay, here is my here 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 is my read, and it has a and it has two parts one is moving forward in time the other is moving backwards in time and then oh my they god no the oh. <laughs> oh. i'm just literally just gonna pepper this entire episode with tenet references because i wouldn't have had to have watched it if you hadn't insisted on coming on mood to talk about yeah it. this so, is my fault so the punishment will be everlasting I actually do have something interesting to say about that, but we can come back. To, we can, <laughs> we can we, well, we can travel back in time <laughs> to this point of the show and talk about it. Okay, so my assessment of this post is two pronged. Prong one is what I think this is supposed to be saying is that going out for dinner is like romantic coded and kind of romantically framed, and people should be normalizing doing like date stuff but with their with their friends and this is part of the and this is part of this like kind of interesting kind of like why do people think that like friendships are less important than romantic relationships right, which right. is like it's a kind of interesting kind of cultural shift and i don't really understand what it's trying to say other than it seems to be part of a kind of general mood of trying to terrorize people out of saying that they want romantic relationships which seems to be kind of like a, it seems to be like a kind of like kind of vivid thing that keeps kind of going on in the background and so that's what i think they're getting at but i also think that this post is a joke i think it's supposed to be making fun of the normalization posts and i think that something that we've spotted over the last little bit is that people's comprehension disorder shall we say uh, and whether that is because um things that are jokes are now so similar to things that people say sincerely and actually maybe it's like supremely arrogant to uh expect anyone to understand that you're joking because you're expecting a bunch of uh, a bunch of hostile strangers to know everything you think and everything you say about everything and so they should be able to kind of make a correct read on whether or not you're being ironic or whether or not you're actually serious uh like yeah. i mean because i've been thinking a bit more about the post about um tom holland being comfortable about around minorities that we talked about for the bonus episode last oh, week yes, yeah. and i'm actually kind of kind of leaning towards actually i think they might have been joking but there's also, yeah. I think it might have been there, a bit. But like, if I can bring this comment and tenant together in one super, yeah. please, you know, <laughs> please do. The sense in which tenant, do you remember the, <laughs> remember the part in tenant where he's like, "Don't worry if it makes sense, just do it." Just yeah, like feel yes. it. yeah, it's all just vibes. Tenant is all yeah. just vibes, v vibes only. Right? But like, I recently saw a pretty good expl explainer about. Um, a new kind of mode, which is not, it's not sincerity or irony. It's post irony. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe there's a little double, like a play on words. It's like post irony as an after, but also mm -hmm. post irony. Also, yep. you're posting. Mm -hmm. And it's like through the looking glass, stop caring if it's ironic or not. 
it can be sincere and ironic at the same time. Yeah. And like to some people, it will signify a jo- like joking, a joking tone. And to mm-hmm. other people, it'll be like, you idiot. And like, yeah. that's the point is that like, it doesn't mean everything to the same person. And in fact, on the internet, it's actually impossible to reliably convey meaning through like. Yeah, I don't know. That's absolutely true. But it's this, it's this kind of coalescence of both language and semiotics. Um, to make different things legible to different people, depending on uh, depending on their convictions and depending on their kind of uh, depending on the way they're reading it, and it's why um, the two people. Uh, this is not so much the case anymore because, uh, to my great to my great upset, uh, my wife has now dropped <laughs> back out of the lexicon. But uh, there was this, there was a kind of period of time where there were precisely two people who were using the Borat voice and they were like like aggressive ultra normies who go on ski trips and like are married to the person that they have like dated since school and then like kind of weird internet goblins in basements but they are they're using the same joke and it's the same voice and it's the same quote and you and you have to have this particular kind of uh, kind of leg- sort of legibility capacity to be able to know which one is which, and I think that there's so I think there's partly that, and I think that there's this general comprehension disorder uh, where no one can identify what a joke is anymore, and then there's the kind of the poster's arrogance where you expect hostile strangers to know everything about you and to know what your um, what your inclinations are and what your style of humor is and what you think about everything. So of course they must know it's a joke. You see this quite a lot when like a joke goes viral and then you see the person complaining saying like people think that I'm serious and it's like well why wouldn't they know that? Why would they know? Why would they know any different? But I saw right. this a lot with people just going back to the Oscars. Like we've got so much content out of the fucking Oscars. It's completely, it's completely surprising to me. But a lot of people were complaining about Amy Schumer making a joke about Kirsten Dunst and calling her a seat filler, which is clearly a joke because Kirsten Dunst right. is a very, very accomplished and multiple award winning actor. So yeah, like, yeah, of yeah. course, calling her a seat filler is supposed to be a kind of like right. wink. It's not even like it's a hacky. It's a hacky joke. It's not even it's like yeah. it's not even a new joke. And like and and like the and the and the posting response has been like, how dare she? Here are all the brilliant films that Kirsten Dunst was in. Mm. And and it's I think it's all part of a kind of collective collective humor and comprehension disorder. I really but then again, this could also, because it has the shape and the linguistic like affect of it, this could be a completely sincere post and part of the your friendships are as important as any other relationship in your in your life. Yeah. I think there's also been like bear in mind there's also this context of like there's also this context of like posts which have been very sincere, which clearly like um in which the poster clearly doesn't actually know what friends are. So like mm-hmm. you, know, you have and, you know you have that like classic one where it's you know that text message of like oh you know I don't have the emotional capacity to really like speak to you right now but can we arrange it for some other time in my schedule and you have like similar posts in that vein in which like the kind of concepts of friendship as they become like digitally mediated almost seem like very managerial right mm. um or like they're sort of like presented in this sort of managerial way and then you also have like subsequent quant- content which um, seeks to kind of like categorize different kinds of friendships and everything. And as that categorization takes place, like, 
you know, those types of, you know, so, so then you have a post like this, which is like the most mundane observation, like, yeah, friends should go out and eat together. But then you have that term normalize, which mm. I think really sort of drives it where I can sort of understand, like, oh, I, I looked back to um, the or the original poster who I haven't included in the notes, but like, yeah, they were saying it as a joke, but crucially, they also like are a low follower account, but isn't kind of followed by any other kind of like jokester accounts or like, you know, uh, ship or like dirtbag leftist accounts or whatever, like people mm -hmm. that accounts that you would usually use to sort of identify is this person fucking around or not. This is a completely sort of just like neutral unfollowed account. And like, I think all those factored in together, I can understand why people, including me, would look at this and be like, yeah, they're being completely sincere in kind of like not understanding what a friendship is because we've seen this so many times before played out in like what seems to be quite a sincere way. Okay, this sure. Is why, this is why when someone sends me a post like this, like in my normal, like if a friend, for example, I think I know what a friend is. If a friend sent <laughs> me a post like this. Yeah, it depends. I, I mean, it depends like... how many times you've gone to IHOP with them. <laughs> um, it just depends. Like, depends on the right it's just like um i don't read them i don't even they don't even sink in i'm just like i have no idea the way i read them is essentially like i have no idea who this person is i don't want to expend the energy and effort it would take to mm. contextualize them yeah i choose to accept this in the way that my friend sent it to me which is like i'm just gonna laugh at it and move on yeah like yeah no because you don't you don't want to be spending your time combing down somebody's timeline trying to work out if the specific thick standalone thing and this yeah. is what people should be aiming towards when they write their posts yeah it's true they should be seen in like the context of a kind of wider corpus of creative material but it, they should also stand on their own terms and their own merits mm. but at the risk of uh kind of very much lifting the curtain and sort of and sort of showing the real wizard of oz behind this podcast also fundamentally with this particular kind of post like who cares who cares if they're serious they're not hurting anyone they're saying a dumb stuff who, uh, they're saying a dumb thing who oh cares? yeah well look we just need <laughs> we just needed filler we just needed some filler to open the show that's um, true that's true pay no attention that's I, like, you should we should the thank behind people, the curtain. Like, right but that's it ultimately the posture you have to take is one of gratitude like there are people writing these things and you know they're serving your needs they're serving my hypothetical friend i don't actually have any friends who sent me this tweet um <laughs> you know they're just they're filling a need obviously and so we should be grateful to the um, yeah to this person the irony is not lost on me that like i've used this very low energy tweet that like in a normal situation no one should really care about and using it as filler for like our show about content, which will then be produced as content for a content-based platform and then shared across other content-based based platforms. Um, so you're right. Yeah, they are like, they basically, you know, they are part of the, they are one of the cogs inside the machine. And uh, the person who wrote this tweet is doing just as much valuable labor as all of us are. So uh, yeah, it might be thanks. the best. It might yeah, it might be the best tweet ever written, you know? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like, I feel like I, 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 um, I'm very impressed by low energy tweets and just the fact that like mm. they gain, they, they tend to still be the ones that like gain the most traction. Um, yeah. as someone who like, as sometimes tries a bit too hard, like to do bits online, uh, sometimes it's a nice reminder to be like, keep it simple. Um, bear in mind that like people, there are more people online than ever before who, uh, get really angry and much more angry than they would in any other normal situation. So, like, you know, you don't really have to do that much to, to like solicit a response. Yeah, that's true. That it's it's pretty easy.
it's very easy to get a response as you as you find out basically daily because you can't stop yourself from doing it no i need help you know i I've, i'm getting help i've got i'm going back to weekly therapy sessions and a lot of my therapy sessions are like why do i why do i post stuff i don't why i don't do you know do this? yeah i'm glad why you brought that up because um <laughs> what what's, what strikes me is that um um these low energy posts or like these posts you're saying like try it's an interesting relationship between the amount of effort that goes into the post and the virality of the post. Mm. Like oftentimes my posts that go viral are ones where I just like, uh, in the same way that you have good ideas right before you fall asleep or in the shower, mm. when you're in these kind of like half aware states, there are things that just like pop into my head and I'm just like, Bleh, you know, I just like let it out. Yeah. Whereas like, if I like think about it too hard, it's, it's like, that's a 30 like post. But if I like, if it comes from this kind of like, I don't want to say, this is why I think, you know, thought of therapy. If it comes from this like pseudo unconscious place, you know, that's the self that I think is most, maybe most valuable to Twitter. Okay. So the best posts come from the id and the worst posts come from the ego. Yeah, I think that's right. And the super, it's the job of the super ego to mod, mod which yeah. is true. It's the job <laughs> of the super ego to moderate. Or no, is that, yeah, I think that's right. I think yeah. I guess that's a good way of putting it actually. <laughs> that would be good that would make good for, for good merch. We should like write that down. That could make like a good t-shirt or something. Um, I just tweet it after we record and then like Absolutely. You know, yeah, all those. you do yeah, all you do Please that. Do. You know yeah. what? It, you know what? We're not we're not um we're not into um hierarchies of ownership on this show. Everything is everything is everyone's. Yeah, you should like post it and then you should post a graphic of like a Rick and Morty thing. Um, I think that'll be very cool. I think I'll get like lots of uh, lots of like. I don't think people refer to Rick and Morty anymore. I think Elon Musk kind of killed it dead, which is quite impressive. Yeah, like, imagine well... imagine being so embarrassing that you managed to like completely like undermine, uh, kind of broad public like broad popular support for something that you like. Well, I was doing it more as a segue because I wanted to read something out from our friend Elon Musk before we sort of get into disinformation. We don't need to analyze this too much, but I just thought it was very funny. Sure. So, so again, a couple of days ago, Elon Musk posted, uh, is a new platform needed? Um, to which Gab.com responds, it already exists, Gab.com. Um, so then a guy called Bengals Ryan responds to Gab saying, no sports on Gab, can't convert until that happens. To which Gab responds angrily, sports, sports idolatry is why men in this country are so weak and effeminate. Your country is being invaded and destroyed and you're watching sports ball. Sad. Whew. Um... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I like it. I think this is, I think heard, is an like, interesting, like, inversion of like of kind of traditional <laughs> modes of masculinity. I like it. No, no, but like, I've never heard a more perfect gab. Like that's gab. Like gab can't get out of its own way. It like it's so stupid and like fundamentally, it's an gab is like an angry reactionary nerd. It's not mm. like uh like gab. The Torba, you know, like the whole Gab thing is like, I'm a right wing software developer. Like, mm. like it's not someone who's like misses, you know, swigging brews with the boys and like rating women on a scale of one to ten. Is like, <laughs> yeah, it's someone who like has never had a friend and like, yeah, they've, know, ne they've, ne they've never, they've never, yeah, maybe they need to normalize. They need to see the normalized 
normalize eating out yeah. with your friends. Post. I think honestly, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of healing that could happen if um if they, if we normalize yeah <laughs> eating out with friends. I think like you know, and one day I really love to do an episode on this um about like just the decline and fall of like right wing social media kind of kind of like projects. Um, because I think there are like lots of reasons for that, but like at the core of it, sort of seems to be about like none of them really sort of know what makes a social media platform good or useful. Mm. Um, and because like so much of them sort of go in with like very kind of like political ambitions, um, whether it's sort of like to kind of rally the pro-Trump people or to sort of be an incubator for like QAnon related stuff, whether it's just like grievances. I was on Gab for a little bit when it first came out, just because I was curious as to like what it was and how it worked. Um, and I was so, so surprised how much of it was just filled with like screenshots from Twitter and people being really mad that they weren't allowed to post it on Twitter. Um, so like you have this user base of people who aren't really invested in the platform. They don't really want to do anything with it. They're just really angry that they sort of got excluded from like the no, um, like the no Millhouse's party because they already have one Millhouse. I don't know (laughs) like what that scene goes, but you know what I I mean, right? I think that kind of points to like Twitter's part functionality now as a kind of gigantic aggregation machine mm-hmm. and like how much of like other social media yeah. kind of like feeds into and like makes up uh, yeah, exactly. makes up yeah. the, the the content that gets kind of hung onto sort of twitter's framework and how like what an important part of the data architecture it is but i think it more points to for the failure of a of a right of a kind of specifically right-wing social media platform is partly because uh the kind of the conflict is kind of part of it and if you're with a bunch of people that you agree with or who are there because they've kind of like fled from other platforms um then the kind of the, the kind of conflict aspects not aspects not there and also i think sort of more pertinently is there's no, there, there are no, there's no recruiting aspect um because the people who are there have already been recruited so it's not so it it, it has no function for them there's no reason right. for them to keep it going right you also don't want to like go to work and ask your boss like if he's on Gab, you know, like, like, man, I follow you on Gab and those are some really amazing racist jokes you've been, you know, amazing racist (laughs) memes you've been posting. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of want to know what like a Gab influencer would look like or like what, you know, um, who, who like, the answer is they tend to, they tend to be Twitter influencers who get kicked off Twitter. Right. Um, and like, I think the point is completely, you've both sort of made it, but like the dynamic, you know, that these people are obsessed with is offending libs mm. and without mm. libs to offend, there's no, there's no yeah. spark. There's no spark. It just, I mean, it just, a, it just becomes there. like a kind of support network. And I, and I, and I understand this tendency because look, I was, I was a guy who like went to alternative, like, you know, uh, house parties when I wasn't invited to the cool kids one. And we spent that entire time uh, all four of us, if I if we were really lucky, being like, yeah, this is so much better than like going to the cool kids party. Um, uh, we get the whole sofa to ourselves, and you know, my mate's parents are only around the corner. Um, yeah, you had to like spend loads of time really convincing yourself that like what you were doing was like a good use of your time, but like you'd be seething in resentment entirely. So everything, so you you wouldn't even enjoy spending time eating with your friends, right? Because you were too busy, because you're too busy being resentful that you weren't actually invited to the other thing. Because no um, one ever told you to normalize eating with your friends. That's right. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, that, that's a conclusion. Yeah, it's also like it's sad. It's a sad posture too, because like you know, some of these people just want to be loved. Mm. Um, like they just want approval, but like the only way that they can, like so much of it is just like pure attention-seeking behavior. 
Um, like, mm-hmm. you can't figure out a way to do it that's, like, annoying. You know, the annoying way we the rest of us get attention on Twitter, which is, like, coming up with mod- modestly clever things or, like, making co- good content. Mm-hmm. And so instead, you it's just like a, it's like a fast track to getting a reaction. And, like, some people get off on that. As a little brother, um, like, I, I know the impulse of, like, trying to get a reaction by saying something outrageous or annoying. Mm. Um, but, like, you can't base your politics around it. Yeah. Um, and it's just, like, it's, like, tedious. And all of them are fucking are miserable failures, as you have, you know, as you've already said. So. Mm. Well, we'll see how, I mean, like, you know, we'll see how it goes. When, when Elon gets, when Elon goes on Gab, uh, it might change things. Uh, I'm looking forward to it if he does. Um, but why don't we talk about something a little bit more serious? Uh, you know, so all the all, all the jest aside about uh, friends and what they are. Um, Joe, we asked to come on because uh, something that we've been talking about a little bit is misinformation and disinformation. And I guess like within that frame, like fact checkers and the kind of like professionalization and the institutionalization of this particular beat. Um, now, like, I don't kind of want this to necessarily be disparaging of the work that people in this space do, because I think it is very valuable and useful, especially in contexts such as like conflict and war, where a lot of these accounts and like a lot of these initial projects are really, really useful at, you know, detecting things like potential war crimes and stuff like that. But at the same time, in an essay that you wrote for Harper's quite recently, um, which is also linked in the show notes, you kind of point out that like there is something much bigger at play, which is much more to do with like the epistemology of information and the politics of knowledge production. And I thought it was like a really interesting way to look at this stuff. So for people who haven't read your essay, um, like, could you kind of summarize it for us and like what you were arguing and I guess what you were thinking about while you were writing it? Yeah, before I get into that, I do want to, I do want to pick up something that you mentioned, which is um, essentially online people who use digital information um, to do extremely valuable reporting work and in investigative reporting work um what we would call OSINT, open source intelligence um mm. i mean there's a lot of like hacks who do it too but like there's also pulitzer prize winners who do it um bellingcat um uh and the desk at the times that does is incredible um and i have friends who work on it um and i think that brings me to a point which is that like separating truth from fiction or like getting at the facts of, a, of, the, of the matter um is something that all journalists should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like more broadly, and, and I'll get into it, but like having a beat that's just like what's true and what's false seems insane to me mm-hmm. um, because like it should be distributed throughout journalism. Um, like a, a politics reporter, um, a markets reporter, you know, a conflict reporter, all these people should have a sense of the way that propaganda works um, yeah. and be able to explain to their readers how it's, how it's functioning. Yeah, it's so like it's back. like you can't put in a job application now that like you're happy working on your own or with a team because it's just deemed to be like the absolute sort of baseline necessity. And yeah. this kind of basic fact checking is like a baseline necessity of the professionalization of journalism, just full stop. Yes. Yeah. So um a number of things, a number of historical and media uh, sort of media related technological factors came together to make this a thing. Um, but I, I should back up and just sort of talk a little about my own background and how I got thinking about this. Um, as I said, I did this fellowship and I had a year to just, um, kind of stew in my own, not my own ideas, but other much smarter people's ideas. Uh, and I, I, 
I um, heading into the fellowship, I was a little unhappy at the way some of this internet reporting had gone. Um, I thought that there was a um, maybe too much of a focus on um, bad content, bad information, and not enough focus on what gets people to believe or act on that bad information. And maybe more significantly, there wasn't, as far as I could tell, a lot of empirical basis for fo focusing on like content that bothers us, other than the fact that it's at hand, like mm -hmm. easily at hand, as we've been talking about. Very easy to go online and find something that riles, you know, riles you up or that you find hateful or stupid or misleading. That's like the default state of being online. And while and like, frankly, people are romantic for um, for like an older Internet. The older Internet was also full of like absolute, you know, toxic bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, OK, I'm um, so. Anyway, I, I was a little I thought that the focus was a little too had gone a little too far on bad kinds of information, but I didn't really I was just annoyed by it. And often I find when I'm annoyed by something, but I can't really articulate why that's a good time to like start to read about it. Um, so I took a class uh, with this wonderful professor named Sheila Jasanoff, who's one of the kind of deans of science and technology studies, which is um, basically. Um, it's a field that tries to explain science and tech as social phenomena that get created, um, not just according to some kind of empirical logic, but um, as a social process. Mm -hmm. um, the easiest way to think about it would be like, you know, when people talk about the algorithm expressing um, the values of the people who create the algorithm, you know, something like that. But, but thinking more broadly about the social aspects of science and tech. And one of the things that it's very concerned with is um, the way experts get created. Um, mm. like why, you know, the, the very idea of a talking head or an expert, like how do these people derive their expertise? Mm -hmm. And, um, that made something click for me, which was basically, um, there were all these experts on missing disinformation and I knew they didn't know any more about this stuff than me or the various other reporters who'd been looking into it for basically since, you know, shortly before the Trump first Trump administration came about. Mm. Um, and they were claiming ownership of it in a way that I thought was really interesting. They were trying to sort of turn it into a field of knowledge um, right in front of my eyes. And I thought, well, like, what is what is the basis of this field? What what are its values? What are its tenants? What holds it together? Um, and one of the things I really quickly found was that there aren't even like empirical definitions that satisfy that are that aren't either like ludicrously broad. Mm. Um, for mis or disinformation, um, or like narrow enough that they're obviously political. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was thinking like, well, what, you know, who is this helping? Who does this, who do the, you know, yeah, we can talk about how bad information or propaganda is like bad for the country. Of course it is. Um, but like, is the quality of the information on the internet, like, is there a direct relationship or does it come out of all these like deeper factors? And so, and when I talk about deeper factors, you know, I'm talking about all the, you know, entire suite of cultural issues that, you know, make America the kind of deeply messed up, unequal, violent, um, racist place that it is. Um, and, you know, I think I like to think the media has some power, but I, I also think that the media reflects, uh, in addition to, to, um, 
to shapes its audience. So, um, mm-hmm. anyway, um, I started thinking about who, who this like reliance on, um, bad media, bad content as a vector of political change, like who it really serves. And I started thinking about how, um, I read a really good book by a kind of technologist named Tim Wong. Who I think maybe the general counsel at Substack guy might be getting that wrong, but he, um, his argument is about how online advertising is a house of cards, how the, the empirical data behind it is not very strong um, and how it's supported by it. There's sort of myth making around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it struck me suddenly that the idea behind the kind of mis or disinformation critique, which is that bad information online convinces people to do bad things like mm-hmm. vote for President Trump, for example, um, that that if you strip out the politics is not all that different from the sales pitch of a, of an advertiser mm-hmm. um, or someone who's selling ads for a um, platform. Um, and in fact, the idea that social media content like holds the key to like, you know, the lock of human persuasion um, is, is a argument or a message that is actually um, kind of helps Facebook helps platform Mm. um and so i started thinking about like well maybe that explains why these platforms have not pushed they haven't pushed back very hard on the idea that their platforms are convincing people of things and maybe Mm. that's why and instead the move that they've made is they've brought these researchers on board yeah um you know they do and, and you know i mean that's i think a lot of people in many industries would say like the best thing you can do with your critics is bring them in your circle um and i think that's when I started to see this field, not just as something that was maybe missing the bigger picture, but as something that was maybe unintentionally um, reinforcing the power of the platforms that um, it was trying to criticize. Mm. Something that I thought was interesting in, um, in, in, in your piece um, was the idea that uh, that misinformation and disinformation as it is commonly understood has its origins in an explicitly intensely political and intensely ideological way of uh thinking about um particularly propaganda coming from the soviet union and sort of that's kind of that's what this kind of contemporary framing is about and i think that's like i think that's something which sort of doesn't really get picked up on because there is this sense that misinformation and disinformation studies is unideological and it is people from all across the political spectrum banding together in order to in order to fight um fight the spread of misinformation as um as kind of embodied on social media and again it's very noticeable that there is very little interest in combating uh exactly the same material that is coming from uh, legacy media outlets. So, like, so, over, so, so over here, because of BBC impartiality rules, um, any time you have any kind of expert about anything, you have to get some fucking whack job um, on in order to kind of provide balance. And then the same, and then the same journalists uh, behave with this kind of, but sort of, oh, we're still trying to find the guy who did this. Um, some years later, when say something like uh, vaccine hesitancy is very, very common, and they don't at all uh, 
see themselves as having to accept any responsibility for mm. having platformed mm. uh, anti-vaxxers or platforming climate change deniers. I mean, like a, an ext- like somebody who is thought of as like an absolute kind of titan and king of political journalism in this country uh, was responsible for uh, pushing AIDS denialism. And he is a climate change denialist. And he is not treated in the same way that somebody uh somebody spreading this kind of stuff on social media is because uh the because the the, the material is the same the content is the, sa- is the same but the framing and the categorization and the labeling is is not the same and it's very very noticeable that mark zuckerberg and the guy who founded linkedin is not interested in tackling even quite like dangerous and anti-social lies pushed by legacy media outlets yeah i mean part of that and um i get into it maybe a little in the piece part of it is just like facebook and these and these um, platforms are desperate for like institutions to help them Mm. um like facebook is like i think facebook in some ways would like nothing more than like sources of authoritative knowledge or like ways of dealing with this sort of like massive you know I don't want to call it democratization because that's not right, but like the massive mm. dissemination of the power to sort of publish, um, like it would like nothing. But the fact of the matter is like, you know, at least in the U S you know, the legacy media has really still not reckoned maybe fully with the role it played in pushing the Iraq war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, right. I mean, this is sort of a little further afield from what I'm talking about, but it's certainly one reason that like the Glenn Greenwald left like my piece, um, because like, the media has not reckoned with the extent to which, you know, under a kind of guise of objectivity, it's actually pushed a certain kind of politics. Mm. Um, and like, I don't think you need to be a Greenwaldian sort of like whack job to understand that that's like why some people don't trust the media and why like the attempt by that media to then create a subfield that separates, <laughs> that claims to be able to separate truth from fact mm. is like, like to a certain person is going to seem insane. Yeah. And like, to not even acknowledge that perspective uh, and to like sit in New York or wherever the, you know, or London or wherever and like take that stance is like, um, it's blinkered, you know? Um, so. Yeah. And, and and another thing, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about this and then I'll let Hussein um, carry on with, um, carry on with his questions. Um, I just wondered if you could just tell me more about, the uh, Rockefeller Communications Research Institute, because this is something that just like massively just like leapt out at me about like the oh. idea of like the origin of of this kind of research and int- and like institutional interest in this kind of research coming from coming from the fucking Rockefellers. And what this just made me think of is because like whenever I see anything, anything which is a kind of American institution, and maybe this is being on unf- like unfair and just very kind of instinctively kind of sort of anti sort of anti uh, if not anti-american then certainly anti the imperial core um anytime i see anything about uh, the kind of the founding or the origins of a kind of american institution of whatever description my instant thought is i wonder in what manner this was set up to like union bust this is what i wonder like every <laughs> like every single time like i wonder in what specific way this was set up in order to in order to um undermine um undermine and interfere with uh sort of work worker organization and worker 
and sort of worker rights. And so when I see something like the Rockefeller communications research, what it makes me think is, is this entire area of kind of interest and study uh, a way of um, a way of assigning uh, objectivity to the kind of truth which is being pushed by people like the founder of LinkedIn, by the by the people who are in charge of Facebook, etc., etc., etc. Because actually, if you can say to people that their that their lived reality, which is as which is as a kind of sub as a kind of as a labor subject, they are um, a powerless component in a capital engine and the only people who have any kind of uh, say over how the world works and how it goes are the people who profit off their surplus labor that is according to these institutional interests this is misinformation and this is uh and this is a conspiracy theory and this is and this is like an example of like bad information being passed around but if institution institutions are encouraged to behave if they have some special access to an objective truth and objective way things are then they can disseminate a lot of very very dangerous and a lot of very anti community and anti <coughs> and, and sort of anti anti worker and anti individual um material and that just that's just just what it just made me instantly think of as soon as I saw the word Rockefeller in there. <laughs> so um, there's a lot there. Um, and I should say I did some reading about the history of what the field that was initially called propaganda analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a history of studying um, political, basically political message. It, propaganda is a complicated concept because when most people think of propaganda, they think of like either Lenny Riefenstahl um, and this kind of like you know, mid-century, like, dawn of mass media mm-hmm. thing, or they think of, like, just, like, pure lies and, like, a like you know, like, again, Cold War brainwashing type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the more sophisticated um, scholars of propaganda will all basically say a lot of propaganda is true. And it, like, mm-hmm. like, just because something is propagandistic doesn't mean that it's not based in fact. But it's actually, like, the way people have been prepared to believe or accept or act on certain facts is more mm-hmm. what makes it propaganda um, or propagandistic. Um, and so context and political perspective are actually very important. And it's less about being able to sort out objective truth from fact and more about understanding um, like political subjects in their own context. Mm-hmm. So like um, to come back to what you were talking about, the Rockefeller Foundation, and and bearing in mind that I wrote this piece um, basically a year ago um, because mm-hmm. it, it, it's a magazine story takes forever to publish. Um, my understanding from the the sort of reading I did um, in the history of these these disciplines is that um, the academic study of propaganda first comes around after the First World War, and it's it's linked to muckraking journalism, um, mm-hmm. which almost always has kind of a or or in its sort of in that kind of heyday of it has a left wing bent. You know, it's sort of um, exposing bad working conditions, exposing powerful interests in the way that they keep, as you said, the way that they keep working people down. Um, so the academic study of propaganda at this point is almost like a collaborative thing between um, left-wing journalists and academics, mm. and it seeks to expose the role of powerful interest in shaping the news. Um, that's just sort of what um, it's thinking about the First World War and the way that a lot of poor people were sent off to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's very much concerned with the way that um, opinions are formed 
um, in a class context. Mm-hmm. In the and and I'm not going to get my history perfect, but basically in the late 30s, early 40s, <coughs> what you're talking about is that the Rockefeller Foundation um, starts sponsoring something called communication research as opposed to propaganda analysis. Mm-hmm. Those both may this maybe sound like the same thing, but communication research um, is much more about empiricizing messaging. Um, it, it, it takes psychologists, political scientists, um, and consultants who basically say, I, I mean, think of them more like, a, like Don Draper types who say so, that they have, they have the scientific key to unlocking, you know, sort of human understanding or human mm-hmm. persuasion. Um, and so I do think, you know, to, to sort of come to your point about, um, Facebook and like, um, sort of foreclosing on um, like left-wing politics, I think we do need to acknowledge that the vast majority <laughs> of shitty content or like content that gets taken down under a misinformation framework is probably things that we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anti-vax, uh, racist stuff, you know, lies about the election. Like, like th- there is a real problem um, and it's not just like an excuse to like, crack down on leftists but i do think like that sort of that view from nowhere that like absence of politics that move should at the same time make people on the left uneasy absolutely yeah Mm. Um, i mean i mean like like, obviously like i'm not this is certainly not a defense of either anti-vax posting or racist posting or any of the stuff that um that like gets kind of put on social media like it's not a kind of like this is the this is the real workers posting and like mm-hmm. and that is just and that is just what ordinary people should be allowed to do just like just be just racist all over social media um like that's not it's not it's not what it's not what i mean at all and i think in terms of like we don't really need to kind of make a slippery slope kind of oh well what if this extends to leftists because i've i've got some news about <laughs> how <laughs> about uh about how how leftists are treated institutionally and by uh, state and mechanical power uh, historically, um, historically, and in the in the contemporary in the contemporary period as well. Yeah, and like um, and like, if, if I can just cut in really briefly, yeah, yeah, like, like you know the idea the idea which is being kicked around by some of the people in this world, and I think has died down, that there should be essentially like like <laughs> a government minister of like propaganda like online or like someone who like <laughs> control like someone who like make sure that. Do you want that per- who's like a political appointee? Like, do you mm. want Donald Trump appointing mm. that person? There should you know, be. Like, I I think there should be a post as minister, and it should be me. Uh, I, that's yeah, my, I mean, that's I, my take. <laughs> you would that have to sign. So you couldn't. You'd have to like conflict. Like, you'd have to conflict yourself out of posts about like tenant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. Um. No, but that, that's like a really good point. And like, um, I was gonna ask you a spin-off, and that's like a good way of like asking you this question about like the institutionalization of like, I guess this 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 kind of beat and how it's sort of framed. And you kind of touched on it a bit, where it's like you have tech companies who are like not necessarily denying the effects of their platforms in terms of spreading misinformation but i guess like using the sort of like disinfo apparatus as a way to kind of deflect from the idea that their tech is like the thing that like the accelerator behind this and that the only way to kind of really meaningfully tackle disinformation if you consider disinformation to be as dangerous as like you know you're saying it is is to really like dismantle these systems but in lieu of that everything else just sort of seems to be a way of 
at least suggesting that the tech platforms aren't to blame and they can just be improved that they have more institutionalized uh like uh or if they have if they if they're able to kind of like control the flow of information and i guess like that brings me to this next question of like how or how you kind of conceive of the institutionalization of disinformation of the big disinfo beat like how that sort of occurred like i guess a part of it comes out of um the trump administration how they what they considered disinformation to be at the time. And I guess this is also an interesting question too. Like how is disinformation conceived of during the Trump era when, you know, uh, fake news was sort of attributed to the rise and kind of the subsequent election of Donald Trump. to like now where it sort of feels like, even though we don't really have a, what we still don't really have a working definition, disinformation still sort of has this kind of like callous and vicious and vindictive um, sentiment, but it applies to everything from like Russian media and like, you know, media coming out of the Middle East. It come like, it includes like, um, you know, the, the terms disinformation are also used by like the Russian government, for example, in reference to like Western propaganda. It's used by the Israeli government in reference to like Palestinian, uh, like you, Palestinian, you know, and that's like a big one too, that people don't really talk about very much. It seems that like this kind of nebulous definition of like disinformation and crucially like the political apparatus that has like informed that means that this is like, I guess, I guess like put it in simple terms, it sort of feels like this reification of disinformation. It like exists as this kind of bad thing, but it doesn't warrant any other interrogation other than like, this is a bad thing that needs to be eradicated. Um, at all costs. So I guess, I guess, like to kind of put that question more simply, how do you how do you kind of see the way in which we've defined disinformation between, say, 2015 to now? How has that changed? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a tough one. Um, I think, you know, um, Trump being elected president broke people's brains in a way we are still reckoning with, mm. and yeah. I think it, it was just like a psychological wound. Uh, I guess like, because like, you, you mentioned this in your piece as well, where you also referenced Brexit. And I think Brexit's also like the British equivalent of that. I was going to say, I was going to say that, like, if you come of age, basically thinking like liberal progress, like, you know, you know, US gets things wrong, but like, you know, we elected Obama, you know, like, like the curve, you know, or like the, the arc, if you zoom out far enough is towards progress or, you know, whatever the line is like, it was kind of easy to go along with that idea. And I think probably is a similar thing in the UK. It's like, yeah, like we're part of Europe and like, we're sort of like in this sort of like post-conflict era, you know, Mm -hmm. in which people can move freely. And like, you know, really we're just like, if anything, yeah, we're subjects of like global capitalism, but like, you know, my national identity is really not that important. What does it even mean to be English? You know, like that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, at least in America for, 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 you know, for plenty of like, I don't consider myself like a lib per se, but like when Trump was elected, I was upset. I was like, wait, what? Like, how did this happen? How have I been asleep? And I was covering the alt-right and I was still like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, and I think that that, that like moment, that disjuncture, like that people needed an explanation. Mm. And the explanations are complicated. Um, and, you know, there's many different, you know, I think they tend to feed off. I think there's many different explanations and that they all play a role. But mm. one of the explanations that requires the least thought, frankly, is that people have been brainwashed. Mm. Uh, 
that people have been exposed to messaging, otherwise good people have been exposed to messaging that convinced them to vote for Trump. Mm. And um, in some ways, it's a sympathetic thing because it prevents you from having to think too deeply about like the messed up things that your you know fellow Americans believe. Mm. Um, it's just like, well, these poor benighted people who've been exposed to like bad posts. Um, well, that also applies to me. I've been exposed to a lot of bad posts. It's but, the real um, pandemic, baby. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I think that the term catches on in a really in a really um, powerful way after Trump is elected for that reason. And then you <laughs> add the layer um, that um, the Russian regime supports Trump, uh, even, you know, and has tried to help him in various ways. Um, and so you have that cold, that kind of Cold War context coming back. Mm -hmm. And so you have people who are very concerned with like the role of Russia more broadly, adding their voices and like old Cold Warriors, adding their voices to a broader liberal concern about um, how all of these people could have been fooled, you know, mm -hmm. um, by this guy. And so I think that's a very powerful mix that creates, again, this idea of um, or is sympathetic to a kind of a Cold War idea of um, like, you know, truth versus lies, empire of truth versus or empire of lies versus which is funny. Empire of lies is what Putin called the West, um, uh, you know, versus the kind of like decadent, um, you know, Eastern. So, you know, Russian slash Soviet slash you know, rest. I mean, you, you think about the way these things work culturally, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, um, I think that was a major, major moment. Um, and I think that's why I think, I think not in any nefarious way, but I think that's why a lot of reporters, a lot of, um, think tankers, um, you know, the Aspen Institute, various other, you know, kind of places realize that, okay, like this is something this is one problem that is very apparent that people seem to agree on that we can like solve or like study empirically mm -hmm. because it's like, it's not as hard as looking at like just like ingrained racism. Um, yeah. Or, or, or like, or social or kind of social and, and cultural collapse, which is right. <laughs> it's harder. Or like, you know, the difficulties of doing coalition politics, which is what, um, you know, the, the Democratic coalition, like, you know, for a long time, like racists were a big part of the Democratic coalition and they're still trying to figure out how much of the Democratic coalition they want racists to be. Um, mm. anyway, um, this is again, kind of far afield, but over the past four or five years, I do think a lot of the kind of focus on dis and mis misinformation has basically been around, um, the content on basically on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think probably that, that conversation has crested. I think you now have Hussein, as you, um, as you explained, you have a term whose use is general. I mean, it's as useful to, um, Likud as it is to, um, you know, to, um, the Chinese Communist Party, as it is to, um, you know, to Putin, as it is to, you know, as it is to someone who's in good faith trying to expose like an like a influence campaign of some kind on the Internet. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, 
I think the the we need to be a little less concerned with terminology and with like you know making empirical judgments about the worth of information and you know more with um embedding like that spirit of truth finding that spirit of like um honesty in yeah. in media and like teaching people how to recognize what's real from what's not um or differentiate between what's real and what's not um mm. is my my kind of attitude yeah yeah that sounds <laughs> that sounds that sounds, sounds pretty persuasive to me <laughs> i know I, i'm conscious that like we're coming we're coming close to time so i guess like as a way of trying to wrap things up although like this is the thing i feel like this is a subject where you can't really wrap things up because this is not like it's like an ongoing it's like an mm. ongoing like conversation so i'm sure like we'll return to this um but as a way of like wrapping up like this conversation um i guess like one you know w one question i'm sort of left with is someone who like has worked in media and also has worked for like fact checkers and everything is what like you know I, I guess the question that was always sort of on my mind when i was doing fact checking was how it sort of felt like as a fact checker you were sort of not talking to the audience that you were supposed to or rather that your fact checking as content was sort of being used in this broader content wars. So if you fact check a piece of information that said, for example, that like, I mean, I, I, I was doing a long time ago when like conservative governments were like far less interesting. So like, for example, if you like fact check the British conservative government um, who are like, you know, uh, using kind of like a dodgy reading of statistics to justify, you know, um, like one of their policy decisions. Um, you would post it online and you'd be like, okay, this thing isn't kind of true. And like, you know, this is actually what the truth is. And it would either sort of be used by people um, who already were sort of like opposing the government as like a way of trying to take a jab at like supporters of the government or mm -hmm. like on vice versa, like people who would kind of still accuse you of lying and accusing you of being like part of, you know, the kind of like uh, elite information system so like it would just be dismissed anyway right. and then similarly like you know and what we saw in the 2019 british election where the conservative government's like twitter account rebranded as a like fact-checking account um against like the labor party but again like in a very sort of like way that straddled the line between fact-checking and campaigning and you know that there was like a real kind of legal questions around that i guess it's kind of like looking at the aesthetics or like looking at fact-checking and kind of combating disinformation as like an aesthetic project and one where yeah. like mm. the actual kind of basis of like yeah we're trying to kind of like sanitize the internet if you want to do if you want to say that or we're trying to like make the internet like a more uh like a safer place to be on and a place where you can log on and get the right information it sort of feels like in a lot of cases with fact checkers and disinfo people they haven't really answered the first question which is like why do we want the internet to kind of be like this and what does the internet look like when it has like you know, where we have these very strict rules on information, because to me, it just kind of, and I think, Joe, you sort of alluded to this uh, much earlier in our conversation, like people who have spent a lot of time online are very aware that like misinformation is kind of embedded in the system, right? Like everyone who's sort of had an extensive period of like digital culture has sort of recognized that, yeah, you're on this space where like, people lie all the time and you're never sure what's true and what isn't and like what stuff is exaggerated and what isn't and like inevitably as everything kind of becomes content like news will kind of have that thing as well i guess i kind of wonder whether like doing disinfo and kind of doing disinfo in a way where you think that you can kind of get the positives <laughs> of the internet 
as it is, but also have cleaner information. It sort of feels like a contradiction. But if you want that type of stuff, then like you basically need to reimagine what the internet should be and what its function is. And the result is that like a fact, a fully fact-checked, fully authentic, like clean, sanitized internet is very, very far removed from the one that we're even using right now, let alone one that was being used like a decade ago. Yeah, and like the American internet right now embodies a fairly, you know, libertarian attitude towards speech still. I mean, the fact of the matter is you can still basically say what you want on the internet, um, mm-hmm. you know, on 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 most on on big platforms. Um, and so, like, I don't want to I don't want to go out down the right wing like, you know, you know, people are being canceled for their speech left and right. You know, like there's certainly social program, but like I don't think like people are. Well, that's kind of a broader discussion. but um. Was one thing you just said, Hussein, I find interesting is like fact checking as a brand, fact like truth as a brand, mm-hmm. uh, missing disinformation as a brand. Like, who doesn't want to be on the side of, uh, at least seem to be on the side of truth? Um, and, and you know, as I just said, like this whole thing about Putin labeling the West like the empire of lies. Like, of course, like that's that's but that's politics. You know, it's mm-hmm. either national po- it's local politics, it's national politics, it's geopolitics. Exactly to your point about doing. Um, about doing uh, uh, fact checking, you know, sort of political fact checking, you may be completely, you may be telling the truth, but that's also politics. Um, and like to sort of think that we can rise above um, that fray and mm. just call balls and strikes, as it were, uh, I think is naive. Is is naive. Mm. Um, and I think a much better thing to do is educate like we have to agree on what we want our societies to look like and then educate people accordingly and like that base layer which i talk about in the piece that um jacques Alou, the scholar of propaganda called pre-propaganda which is all the cultural messaging that happens before someone is exposed to a like piece of propaganda mm-hmm. um the reason you think what you think um we need to agree like like that is the territory that we should be fighting over just as hard as like the messages people are exposed to online. Um, And like those conversations are so much more. And I don't want to say we shouldn't think hard about like information online and what people are exposed to and like, you know, potential real world world harm. I mean, I think as you said, like the the one area where I'm like uh, not as sure of my argument on is, um, is vaccine stuff. Mm. Um, (laughs) I mean, I do think anti-vaxxers existed long before the internet. Um, and I think they sure. sort of will exist sort of ad infinitum. Um, but like, you know, I do think these are important conversations to be having, but they, it can't just be one thing about, it can't just be one ministry of truth and lies. You know, I mean, we just can't have that. It like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any sense not to think about it in political terms. Um, so yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have anything to add to that. I think that's the- <laughs> I think that's a I think that's a pretty good place to yeah. um, end it on because I'm quite conscious that we're running close to time. We are, and my throat's getting a bit scratchy. But also, okay. crucially, I feel like it's one of those. This is again, this is like something that we will keep revisiting. What I would say is like I would encourage everyone like who's interested in this to read Joe's piece because I think it is like very good and probably one of the few pieces I've read that kind of like critically looks at disinformation as a kind of like epistemological concept which i think is very interesting and useful for stuff like this so joe thank you so much for writing that um and on that note we will wrap it up uh joe is there anything you want to plug or like anything that you would like our listeners to uh keep up to date or if people want to read more of your stuff how can they do that oh yeah um i'm uh you can find my bio on buzzfeed buzzfeed joseph bernstein um i wrote a piece 
earlier this month about a Peter Thiel funded um, film festival um, that I'd love for people to check out if they get a chance. Um, yeah, that's I also very would... good. I enjoyed reading that. Um, and actually, like, it'd be cool to like have you on to talk about that at some point if we ever like do an episode in that area. So uh, maybe we should keep talking on that. But yeah, I'll tag. I'll yep. put that in the show notes bio as well. Um, you can follow us at 10k postpod on twitter.com. You can follow me at hkizvani on twitter.com. Uh, Phoebe, uh, if people want to follow the stuff you're doing, how can they do that? Um, you can request to follow my Twitter, which is um, currently and for the foreseeable future locked um, at prhroy. Um, oh, yeah, uh, really exciting. There is now a donkey in my local churchyard. So my Twitter yeah, no. is just going to be posting, well, it's just, posting it's, donkey updates. It's, it's donkey pics and it's also misinformation. I, I forgot to tell people about the story about how I was a subject of disinformation because someone, someone online, uh, uh, they put on one of these sort of like, not celebrity like accounts, but like those kind of, you know, online kind of personalities and they have like, you know, websites and stuff. Um, anyway, someone had logged that my height was five foot, five foot six. Um, it is not five foot six. It is five foot 6.5. Thank you very much. Thank you for clearing that up. My short king. No, it's an average height for someone of my ethnicity. Okay. Um, that's, that's true. That's true. That's a yeah, good but that, point. But that's also beyond, beyond the point, which is that if you're going to, if you're going to feel confident enough to put someone's height online, even despite the fact that you've never met them. And yeah, get it right. you've got to follow them around yeah. with one of those like meter rulers, what, like they have. At school. I've never thought yeah. about. I've never thought about that before. Hussein, like I compare myself to the average American height, which I am. <laughs> but if I think about the average Ashkenazi Jewish height, yeah, I might be tall, man. <laughs> I'm five. I'm five nine. Like, yeah, I might when, be tall. Oh whenever, yeah, that's that's, that's Ashkenazi tall. Whenever I go to the mosque, where, like, say. whenever I go to the mosque, and my mosque is a very small kind of community of like you know East African Asians that come from similar lineages, I am actually like one of the taller males, right? And it's mm. a real like trip because it's kind of like in every other situation, like I'm not, but like in this one place, I sort of feel like a fucking giant, and it's just like, oh, this must be how like other like white people feel every day that's so cool i can under i can understand why <laughs> why they are the way they are now um why they have so much confidence anyway yeah if can i go back yeah. to talking about this donkey yeah go on, please talk about the donkey very quickly <laughs> it's just no it's just it's really exciting because i live in i live in london where you don't often see donkeys and you definitely don't see donkeys that have just like wandered into a churchyard and it was just there this morning and like and there were like <laughs> cops there that had like shown up to like try to like, arrest the donkey. the donkey they're gonna arrest the donkey because a cab um like th nobody could work out where the donkey came from there's not like a nearby like city farm or anywhere where there might reasonably be a donkey it just like materialized so if you want any updates on the donkey which is literally all i'm going to be talking about for the next forever um yeah, that'll be on my Twitter at PRHRoy. Um, you can follow my Instagram at Phoebe underscore Rose underscore Holly. More donkey pictures. It'll be more more of the donkey. Um, and if you would like to uh, follow or listen to me and Milo's Seinfeld podcast, um, that's Masters of Our Domain. And you can follow that over at Masters of Pod where we link to the episodes and other stuff that we're doing. Cool. Uh, this show is produced by Devon. You can follow them at Devon underscore on Earth. Also listen to Kill James Bond, which is their podcast. Um, I think that's it from us. So until next time, we'll catch you later. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye.